Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a moment, a conversation about public perception of the coronavirus vaccine. But meanwhile, President Joe Biden Biden made this announcement yesterday. My message today is a simple one. Many states have already opened up to all adults. But beginning April 19th, every adult in every state, every adult in this country is eligible to get in line to get a COVID vaccination. So we'll find out what Americans really feel about the vaccine. I'll be joined by Carrie Funk, Director of Science and Society Research at Pew Research Center. And also a conversation because it's 50 years of the Agnes Scott College Writers Festival. All that is just ahead. But first this, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom says a new exec- executive order will push back against Georgia's new voting law. Now Governor Brian Kemp approved the GOP-backed measure last month. Since then, it's been the focus of backlash from critics who say it creates new obstacles to voting, especially for communities of color. Mayor Bottom's order creates a new information campaign on how people can obtain photo IDs, which will be required for absentee voting. In a statement, Bottom's quote said, this administrative order is designed to do what those in the majority of the state legislature did not, expand access to our right to vote, close quote. In other news, another 1,004 new coronavirus cases were confirmed in Georgia yesterday. This brings the total number since last March to 857,307 confirmed coronavirus cases. Also since last March, 16,761 Georgians have died due to the virus and hospitalizations, which are on an increase. We now are at 59,000. 192. And there's a lot more to discuss with all of this. So who do we turn to? Well, as we always do, Sam Whitehead, he's our WABE health reporter and host of the podcast. Did you wash your hands? Sam, as always, thank you for taking the time. Hey, Rose. Great, as always, to be with you. You know, before we get to President Joe Biden's announcement, we're now hearing from CDC officials that that UK variant B117 is now the most dominant now in the U.S., let's take a listen to CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky just from earlier today. Testing remains an important strategy to rapidly identify and isolate infectious individuals, including those with variants of concern. These trends are pointing to two clear truths. One, the virus still has hold on us, infecting people and putting them in harm's way, and we need to remain vigilant. And two, we need to continue to accelerate our vaccination efforts and to take the individual responsibility to get vaccinated when we can. So, Sam, I guess it was just a matter of time before 
this variant would be the most dominant. Your thoughts? Yeah, researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta had originally predicted that this variant first identified in the UK, this B117 variant, would be the dominant variant in the US uh, sometime in March. So it's not really surprising uh, that we have this news from CDC now that it is the most predominant variant, um, but it is a little bit later than we expected. Now, I think it's still important to note, Rose, that the CDC um, and public health in general has still not come to an agreement about whether or not this variant is inherently deadlier. Mm -hmm. So if someone gets sick with it, it's not necessarily guaranteed they're going to have a worse course of disease. We're still learning about that. But something that's more transmissible, which this variant is considered to be, is of concern, right? Because the more people in general who get sick, um, the greater the likelihood that some of those will have adverse outcomes. Well, Sam, when we go back to President Biden, who says that, look, starting April 19th, all states should make adults eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. That's coming at a good time. It is. And I think the thing about this announcement that it's really indicative of the Biden administration's kind of approach here with these dates and these goals, which is really to over deliver. Um, people might remember originally President Biden said May 1 was the date that everyone should be eligible for a vaccine in the United States. And now he's moved that date up a little bit. Um, people might also remember his goal to get 100,000 shots in arms um, in his first 100 days in office. Um, at the time, there were people in the public health community who said that was a somewhat modest goal. Um, and it really does seem like it is. They have already achieved that. And now they've set that bar to 200 million. So, you know, it seems that the new administration is learning um, from what the previous administration did, which was really um, promise things that were not possible and that didn't inevitably pan out. Um, they seem to be taking the opposite approach um, under promise and over deliver. Well, and of course, here in Georgia, adults have been eligible for several weeks now. Uh, through your Lens, how has it been going? What are you hearing from public health officials? Are we seeing an increase in more people getting out and getting these vaccines? You know, we have seen the numbers tick up in Georgia. That's a good thing. The thing that really sticks out to me this week, Rose, is we've had announcements from the Georgia Emergency Management Agency. Uh, they're the ones running these big mass vaccination sites at various places all over the state. Um, they put out a number of messages today saying those sites, which are normally booked by appointment, are opening up to, uh, you know, walk-ups. So, you know, it's like going to the Great Clips. You don't mm -hmm. have to have an appointment. And, you know, I think that for me, that's a sign that in these more rural parts of the state, um, you know, Habersham County, um, down in Macon, uh, that demand is really lagging here. And, and this is something that has really plagued the state from the start. There has been so much demand in certain parts of, of Georgia, metro Atlanta. Um, but as soon as you, you leave the metro area, that demand really drops off. And so, you know, I've said this on your show before, we are going to see a point in time when demand just kind of completely dries up. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have reached kind of our, our saturation of people who want to get vaccinated. And I think, you know, this is just another sign these mass vaccination sites going to walk-ups um, that, that were moving in that direction. Well, maybe Great Clips should also offer a vaccination with the haircut. I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know, but that's interesting, Sam, because Georgia continues to rank among the bottom of states for COVID-19 vaccines distributed per capita. 
we keep hearing that, and the latest report is from the CDC. Is it because once we get outside of the Atlanta area, based on what you just told me, that just this, there's a slow crawl to get the vaccination? Is that what's behind keeping Georgia ranked at the bottom? You know, Rose, I think it's a combination of, of potentially a few things. We, we have heard state officials like Governor Brian Kemp talk about a, kind of the way the state allocates doses. So he, he said um, at one of the more recent press conferences, granted it's been a while, a few weeks since he's, he's done a COVID press conference, um, that the state was working to move a larger uh, kind of share of its doses to Metro Atlanta, uh, where demand was. So, you know, I, I think that part of this is the state coming to realize where people actually want doses and moving doses there um, in response to that. But I also think we have to consider some of the news that's come out from groups like Pew. I, I know you're talking with someone from from there later on the show mm-hmm. um, and, and others who are surveying uh, kind of the general American population's interest in getting the vaccine. And, and what we've seen, Rose, is that, you know, this there was this amazing study from Pew that's been getting a lot of attention that white evangelical Christians are some of the most reticent to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. We, we've also seen studies showing that people who, you know, politically identify as Republican are hesitant to get vaccinated. And, you know, I know that rural uh, Georgia and rural America is not a monolith, but I have to imagine that we have large, you know, swaths of parts of the state where that is people's identity. And so, you know, I, I think that we, we've gotten a, we've seen a lot of attention from public health about reaching out to communities of color mm-hmm. um, and making sure that they have access to vaccine. But but I think there's another key piece of this, which is how are state and federal leaders reaching out to these other groups mm-hmm. um, who are, have just shown, uh, you know, hesitance to, to get a shot. Well, and on that note, because now we learned just yesterday, Georgia will receive more than $95 million in federal funding to expand access for in terms of equity, particularly in communities of color. That's a lot. That's a lot of money to go toward that, which one would argue, OK, that's great. But based on what you just said, there isn't a slow hesitancy in terms of communities of color wanting it. It's just access. Is this then just a situation where maybe states have to really think about whether or not they want to campaign in those areas where people are just slow to get the vaccine? Or do you just continue to focus on let's make sure that these underserved communities or communities of color have access to the vaccine? $95 million is a lot of money. It is. And and to put it in context, this is about three, uh, part of about a $3 billion uh, uh, kind of disbursement that CDC is giving to a bunch of states and jurisdictions. This is money coming from the American Rescue Plan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think, Rose, it's probably not either or. It's probably both. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've had conversations with, you know, people watching the public health space who say, you know, we need to, with certain communities, really focus on access. It's really not fair to say that, you know, black and brown communities don't want to get vaccinated mm-hmm. um, when the issue in a lot of those spaces really is, well, do they have access to those shots? I think that it is, you know, separate, but just as equally important to say in areas where people have access, but they are turning down vaccination. What are the arguments that you can make to those individuals to con- convince them mm-hmm. to get a shot? And, you know, I've talked with people on my podcast about, you know, messaging that specifically works, say, for Republicans. How do you convince, you know, someone who you know, doesn't think this COVID thing is maybe a big deal. Maybe they're they're hesitant of big government telling them what to do. Um, and people who have researched this have said that really appeals that work for people who might be skeptical 
come from their doctors and come from family members. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, regardless of your political persuasion, um, anyone is going to be more convinced when they hear from their doctor or their family member that this is something that is going to help them in their community, as opposed to having that message come from an elected official. Absolutely. Now, Sam, there's another demographic we need to talk about. I'll let CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, who talked about it earlier this week. This is among 18 to 24-year-olds where we're seeing actually some peaks in in cases. And many of these, as I noted, are related to extracurricular activities and youth sports. So, Sam, spring break? Folks down? (laughs) Are we going to blame all this on spring break? You know, I don't I don't think shame um, and, you know, shaming people based on a few pictures and videos is, is ever really productive in public health. Um, but this is something that Dr. Walensky has mentioned of a few of these uh, White House calls. Now, we have seen across the country this rise in cases. Uh, she says it's generally tied to outbreaks uh, in young people. Mm-hmm. She mentioned youth sports. She mentioned extracurriculars. This is not news. You know, the CDC has done these kind of epidemiological studies showing that, you know, things like indoor um, wrestling tournaments was one they looked at in particular. These are great opportunities for this virus to spread. And Mm so as schools across, across the country have been opening up more and been getting more resources to do that. There are these other activities that come with the school day, right? That these communities are also um, engaging in. You know, I think it's important to, to note here that while the CDC and while the Biden administration has really pushed to get schools open, this kind of extracurricular activity has always been kind of a caveat. You know, mm-hmm. they say that these are things that shouldn't be the priority. The, the priority should be how do we get kids back in classrooms safely? Not necessarily, you know, how do we get a, uh, you know, a high school basketball tournament to happen safely? Because it's, you know, when we have to make these these hard decisions about what's the best for our kids, when so many have been out of school for so long, the the CDC and the Biden administration is really focused on getting them back into classrooms safely. And with all of this going on, Sam, we know that this week, you know, Governor Brian Kemp, uh, we expect that he will ease some of the state's COVID-19 restrictions. Of course, one could argue about the timing, considering all the states. I mean, we're not like Michigan, but considering all the states that are seeing an increase in new cases and hospitalizations. uh, Are you hearing from other folks that they have concerns about Governor Kemp now making changes to the state's COVID-19 restrictions at a time where it may not be the best decision? Sure. I mean, this is something that Dr. Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC, and uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, you know, uh, the top infectious disease expert in the country have, have uh, harped on for weeks now. They say now is not the time for states to open up. Um, I know the CDC uh, did a call with states last week and staff from the governor's office, I've been told, were on that call. Um, so it's not like, you know, Governor Kemp doesn't know this is a message um, that is coming from top public health officials. Sam Whitehead is WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. We shall all see. We'll have you back again. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.org.
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. We apologize for the end of our conversation with Sam Whitehead. We call it the Internet gremlins that got us there. Meanwhile, as you heard me say earlier, President Joe Biden did make a major announcement regarding the United States COVID vaccination plan. On March the 11th, I announced that I was opening up all vaccination sites to all adults by May 1st. Many governors, Democrats and Republicans, responded and decided to beat that date, which was good. Thanks to their hard work and the hard work of the American people and the hard work of my team, I'm announcing today that we're moving that date up from May 1st to April 19th nationwide. That means by no later than April 19th, in every part of this country, every adult over the age of 18, 18 or older, will be eligible to be vaccinated. No more confusing rules. No more confusing restrictions. Hmm. Still, just because all adults will soon be eligible doesn't mean everyone is willing or wants to get the shot. The folks at the Pew Research Center have been gathering data on this, as they do so with so many other issues, and they do such a good job of this. A new national survey from the center finds most Americans have a more positive view of the vaccine in general. The report also re- reveals 77 percent of Americans believe vaccinations will improve the nation's economy. And there's a lot more to talk about. Joining me now from the from the Pew Research Center is Carrie Funk, director of science and society research at the Pew Research Center. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you know, you talk about science and society, folks, <laughs> folks get nervous. <laughs> but let's begin by informing our listeners, when was this latest survey conducted? It was in February, um, you know, and what's really interesting about public opinion on these topics is how much it has gone up and down. It's changed through mm-hmm. the through the past year that we've been living together. Um, so that's, I think, a really important point to keep in mind. And we're all dealing with new information every day. Absolutely, because in my next question, or, or rather, I guess, statement to you would be considering all of that, what you just said, folks should understand that they should take all this information with a curve, so to speak, in terms of the information that you're going to give, because things can change. Public perception, human behavior, consumer, consumer behavior can change in, in a day or so. So this wasn't the first survey you all looked at to capture public perception for the vaccine, correct? That's right. We, we started um, back last spring um, asking people about their intention to get a coronavirus vaccine before it was even available. And I think, you know, the important thing here is to look at those broad patterns. You know, it went up and down across different groups, but you often saw certain groups more hesitant than others. And so we can unpack that a little bit. Well, let's talk about the sample size, because I imagine it had to be pretty diverse because these findings are across racial groups as well. That's right. Um, Each survey is kind of customized for different purposes. This one is about 10,000 respondents. 
Um, you know, we have roughly a thousand Black Americans across the nation, roughly 2,000 Hispanic Americans across the nation. So um, that gives us a little more flexibility to talk about what's going on among those groups. Carrie, did you all conduct this survey online over the phone? Um, yeah, it gets technical with surveys these days. So we do it online, um, but importantly, we collect a, a probability-based sample. So in order to do that, we're recruiting people generally through a letter in the mail and asking them to take part in these kinds of surveys. Well, let's get into some of these findings first. The number that stood out for me, 69% of the public intends to get a vaccine or at the time of the survey already has. And this was up, you all say, from 60% who said they plan to get vaccinated back in November. Was that number surprising to you that it had gone up nine percentage points here? Or did you expect it to maybe even be lower? Um, I think one, one of the things we've seen is that was the first survey that we did since vaccines actually became available Mm -hmm. um, for use in the U S. So we saw a lot of hesitation early on and we kind of went down over time. And then actually by February, once, once vaccines were actually available to us, um, we saw that kind of boost back up in terms of confidence. And what about what it revealed based on the gender of the participants this number sort of shocked me a little bit. You all contend that there was a s- more men, a small majority of women, 66%, to 72% of men indicated they intend to get a vaccine or have already received at least one dose. Was that surprising to you? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a puzzle, but we do see this kind of consistent difference between men and women, women being a little more likely to say they either definitely or probably won't get a vaccine. And, you know, that kind of pattern, we see that, you know, within all sorts of other groups, right? Because women are everything, Um, Democrats and Republicans, they're they're black, white and Hispanic, they're Mm -hmm. all those things. So we're tending to see that across groups. And you all also revealed that a majority of black Americans now say they plan to get a COVID-19 vaccine or might have already received one. Now, this was interesting. 61 percent of black Americans up from 42 percent from a previous survey. That's that's a significant jump. Yeah, that that was a big jump. I think. Think that you are seeing, you know, there were early early days where you did see a lot of hesitancy. Sometimes people use that word to mean just what it sounds like. People had questions, and then as those vaccines became available, um, at least some of those people got their questions answered and and answered in the affirmative to get vaccinated. So that's that's part of the kind of changing public opinion landscape that we've been experiencing. The voice you hear is Carrie Funk. She's director of science and society research at Pew Research Center. And we're talking about current public perception of the COVID-19 vaccine. Carrie, I'm curious, did you all look at regions geographically here in the United States? Were you all able to get your information based on, was there something that stood out like maybe in the South or, you know, out West? Um, we do look at regions. We didn't see a lot of differences across regions. I mean, you do see obviously different patterns in terms of access to vaccines, but not in terms of people's public opinion about about what's going on or what they think is important. You know, the, the kinds of divides that separate us have been more along political lines. That's one one factor. And certainly we can talk about other things as well. 
And what about across generational lines in terms of age? Yeah, really interesting what we just heard as well. I mean, we heard from the beginning that the coronavirus uh, would have more impact on older adults, and you do consistently see older adults more likely to be vaccinated right now and to intend to get vaccinated. Again, that that cuts across all sorts of um, racial, ethnic background, as well as political party, all sorts of lines. You all looked at um, income levels as well. What did you find? Yeah, on on average, we see people with a lower family income uh, less inclined to be vaccinated. Um, similar pattern if you want to look at uh, lower, higher levels of, of education. So you see a kind of consistent pattern there where there may be uh, lower income communities in particular need from a public health perspective because of it. And when you all ask folks or if folks indicated that they had no desire, no plan, to get a vaccine, did you follow up and ask them why? What were those reasons? And what were maybe the top two? Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I think people have a mix of reasons and the kind of common ones include concern about side effects um, and some lingering concerns about the speed with which the vaccines were tested and developed. For some people that is still raising questions. And I think the third most common is just saying, I want to know more about how effective they'll be. Hmm. I want to know more. Let's, uh, as we always do, let's talk politics. <laughs> what did you all discover in terms of, I guess, the nation's response to the Biden administration's and their response to the, the, the COVID-19? What did you all find? Yeah, I think overall we see kind of more Americans having a kind of positive stance in terms of Biden's approach likely to help um, us deal with the coronavirus outbreak. And I think a majority seeing the vaccination process as something that's important for getting the economy back back on its feet. Uh, and speaking of the economy, you all cite that 77% think the vaccinations will benefit the U.S. economy. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's the one area of uh, agreement between Democrats and Republicans has been that the coronavirus outbreak has been a major threat to the U.S. economy. They differ over so many other kinds of things, but there is agreement about that. And so that's a a kind of a common goal. Well, in terms of partisan differences, which, you know, this may not be surprising, but Democrats are now 27 percent, 27 percentage points more likely than Republicans to say they plan to get or have already received a coronavirus vaccine. Here was Kerry, 83 percent to 56 percent. Was this gap increasing since the last time you all took this survey? Yeah, that's a that's a wide difference. And it's concerning because it is a widened gap between Democrats and Republicans. So, um, you know, in November, it was, uh, you know, probably 10 points smaller. So that's a that's a concern um, in terms of the direction of that vaccine hesitancy, if you will, um, and to the extent that we're living in communities that are more likely to be Republican or Democrat that could also have public health concerns because you might have kind of pockets where you don't quite reach those collective health benefits. I actually have a question here from a listener who wants to know, what do you all do with this information? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> our listeners are on it, Carrie, I tell you. They are. Well, our our mission is to bring the bring the information out to everyone to be part of the conversation. So we hope that you will... Um, Uh, find something that you take away from it and we have more available on the website. 
You all have a lot of surveys. Now, here's a question as we wrap up. When will you go back and conduct another survey? Uh, soon. We don't, we, don't, uh, we don't give away all our secrets, but we <laughs> certainly intend to keep an eye on public opinion as it continues to shift and as we are all um, making sense of what's ahead of us. And Carrie, anything that stood out to you that we didn't talk about that, in these findings that sort of was a, a, opened your eyes a little bit? Yeah, I, I think one of the kind of major um, fault lines in public opinion is really just the degree to which you're seeing a threat from the coronavirus outbreak. We talked about, you know, seeing this as something that you really need the vaccine because you see that major threat. These two things go together. So some people are not as convinced that that it's a major threat to public health and that aligns with their interest in a vaccine. Uh, yes, there's a lot more we could unpack with that, too. Carrie Funk is Director of Science and Society Research at the Pew Research Center. Carrie, you all do such great work over there. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. This week, there's a celebration of the creative arts, a literary that is, and it's taking place at little small college nestled among the trees in Decatur, Georgia. That's how I like to introduce it. Of course, I'm talking about Agnes Scott College, and it's their 50th annual Writers' Festival. And it is the longest continuous literary event in Georgia and also includes a writer's festival competition. And those categories include poetry, short fiction, creative nonfiction, and playwriting. We'll learn more about that in just a moment. Even at the time of this broadcast, events are underway, many virtual due to COVID-19. But the virus won't stop the spirit and importance of this festival. So ahead of the events, I had the opportunity to catch up with Professor of English Nicole Stement, organizer of the Agnes Scott College Writers Festival, and Alan Grostephan. He's an assistant professor of English at the college where he teaches creative writing. And by the way, he's also a novelist as well. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Before we get to this year's festival, let's go back to last year's festival. Was there a festival? Because there was so much that took place last year, it's hard to remember what actually did happen. We did not meet with our writers. So we were scheduled to have Lydia Yuknovich and Tina Chang and Anna Kabe, who's an Agnes Scott alum. And unfortunately, we were not able to go forward with their readings, but they did judge the Writers' Festival contest. And so we did have winners of the contest. We sent them the magazine virtually. As a matter of fact, three of the four categories were swept by Agnes Scott writers. So we were really thrilled about that, even though we couldn't gather together. How challenging was that, or maybe even a better word, disappointing was that, because this is a big, a huge event in the literary world. Professor Stephen, how challenging was that for you all? I remember, you know, about this time last year, sitting in our Dean, Christine Cousins' office with Demetrius Williams, who runs the events, and Charlie Rotesi, who was the chair at the time, and we just didn't know what was going to happen in the world, you know, and so the festival felt important, and yet, you know, there was so much going on that we, we felt like we had to cancel it. And it was really sad, and it felt like suddenly we were going to jump to the 50th without officially doing the 49th. And what's interesting is that in hindsight, 
we could have done it. You know, we're doing everything virtually or almost everything virtually now. And I think the Decatur Book Festival taught us that you can have an amazing festival and have huge attendance from people all over the world at readings and great panels and Q&As and everything can happen virtually. And so I think, I don't know, that was a lesson for all of us. And I don't think we canceled the single event or reading for the English department last fall or this spring. In fact, we probably had a more lively reading series than ever. And people, again, from everywhere could attend. And it's, it's always a front row seat, right? You're, you're looking right at a full screen of the reader. Uh, Professor Stamit, for this year, what did you all obviously learning from last year? So all the events will be virtual this year? That's right. We had hoped to maybe um, produce the play that is happening. It's the Georgia premiere of Jacqueline Goldfinger's play, The Arsonists. And for a little while, depending on how the virus was going, we thought, well, maybe we could gather distanced in person in the theater or do it outside and it just didn't really work. And mm -hmm. so we decided to to have everything online. Um, and as Alan suggested, you know, the Decatur Book Festival and all of the events that Karis, our community bookstore partner has, has hosted um, for the last many months has really inspired us. And we also have been thrilled with the, the attendance at the events we had the Agnes Scott student finalists in the contest reading last night, and there were 100 people in the Zoom space. And, you know, we can't fit 100 people in the, the room where we normally have that event. And we had alums from all over the world and people's families there. So it was really a wonderful way to celebrate the writers, even though we can't be together. And 50 is such a great milestone for an event like this. And so, Professor Stamen, I'll stay with you. For listeners that may not be familiar with the backstory of the Agnes Scott College Writers Festival, fill them in. Oh, thank you for giving us the chance. It's a it's a great story. You know, in 1972, Agnes Scott English professor Bo Ball had this great idea that we would host a writing contest for student writers all over the state of Georgia. Uh, anyone who is a graduate student or an undergraduate student in Georgia is eligible to enter the contest. And at the same time, we would have celebrated writers give readings and at that time the student writers had to suffer a little bit a panel of the the celebrated writers um, critiquing their work in public and so we've kind of done away with that um, but you know it's a it's been a wonderful opportunity to really just showcase and laud and appreciate student writing and the the possibilities for what that looks like over the years the contest has changed we've added the categories of creative nonfiction and dramatic writing there was a special one-off category for the 40th anniversary where we had songwriting jennifer nettles was our headliner ah. she's an agnes scott alum mm -hmm. and you know taking advantage of her genius we had this special category and student writers from all over the state have won. So it's just, it's been a really dynamic and interesting opportunity to look back at the last 49 years of the festival. How jazzed are the students for this time of year? Professor Gross Stephen, when this is coming on board and when this is taking place, you teach creative writing. What's the buzz around campus typically for this event? I think they, you know, they love meeting writers that, I think it's sort of like a once in a lifetime moment to meet someone like Rita Dove, you know, who's, who's won every award you can win. She's one of the great American poets. And, you know, they're never going to forget meeting her and hearing her read and just the things that will come to her in a Q&A uh, tomorrow. 
And, and, I, and I think one of the interesting things about Agnes Scott is they've read all these writers and, and writers don't often expect that. They show up to give a reading sometimes. Mm-hmm. No one knows who they are, what their book is. And our students in the Q&A will ask very specific questions about the text because they've been studying and discussing them in their classes. And I think the other you know, amazing thing is that they, they hear some things that, for example, you know, my colleagues and I have been teaching in the creative writing classroom, but then they get to hear it from Claudia Rankin or Nikki Finney or Rita Dove or Ngugi Watongo. And it has a lot of power coming from these people. And they're hearing it for a second or third time. And they come back into the classroom in the following week and there's just a new energy. They're trying new things with their writing. They've, they've figured something out about fiction or poetry or the essay and, um, and they're chatting about it. You know, they're talking to each other and, so yeah, it just it gives us all this energy. It gets us to the end of the semester. It helps them get to their sort of their final projects. And so, yeah. And if you're just joining us, I'm joined by Nicole Stamit. She's a professor of English and organizer of the Agnes Scott College Writers Festival taking place right now. It's the 50th year of the festival. And also Professor Alan Gross-Steven, an assistant professor of English at the college. And he teaches creative writing. And he's also a novelist. As well. You know, Nicole, the professor talked about, you know, Rita Dove and Nikki Finney, and that's what's always been great about the Agnes Scott College Writers Festival, the visiting writers that come to campus. And even a few years ago, right here in the studio, I had the opportunity to have Nikki Finney in. And look, I was, I hate using this term, fangirl, (laughs) you know, because I I read. So I can only imagine being in a room where you have someone of her caliber giving you, you know, tips and suggestions and talking about their writing technique and talking about their passion, their inspiration. Uh, It's going to be virtual this year, but still there is that excitement of having these notable literary giants as part of this festival. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm almost finished reading Nikki Finney's newest book, Love Child, Mm -hmm. Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, and it's exquisite and amazing. And I'm, I'm a really fast reader, maybe unsurprisingly, but I've been pacing myself. Okay, I'm only going to read 10 pages because it's just so wonderful. And so we do, we fan all over the writers. And, you know, as Alan's saying, the creative writing students are hearing things about craft and writing that they hear in the classroom and are getting supported and, and they're hearing it again. And this is true for the literature students as well. You know, our department is together. We, we really don't like separating the one from the other. And I'm teaching a class this semester that's exclusively on ethnic American women writers who have been at the Writers' Festival. And so that energy is everywhere. And um, yeah, I, you know, I think that having the opportunity to to see these writers both, you know, live as, as best we can, but also sharing with them some of the archival footage of the writers. You know, we've been just streaming some old videos, which seems like kind of a silly thing to do, but there's, the events are still so great and the questions that students pose and the the kinds of readings that the, the readers have given over the years, just they hold up. And it's just an, a wonderful chance to, I don't know, deep dive and geek out in the literary <laughs> world. You know, upon doing some research for this segment, I learned that the great Edora Welty, back in 1985, read at Agnes Scott. And afterwards, she appeared on the radio program Southwind, which aired here on WABE. Um, the interview was with Boyd Lewis. Many of you may know that name. And Edora Welty began that interview with the following quote. I'm just writing stories because I love to write and I'm interested in people. 
So as we end our conversation, I'm going to ask both of you, why do you write? Professor Gross Steven? Oh. You know that was coming, did you? You didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think partly, you know, one of the main reasons I write is just, in, in my case, it's a love of storytelling. And I go about making sense of the world and what happened yesterday and a year ago just by telling stories about it. And I love hearing stories. And, and so, and, and along with just kind of the, the, the arc of a story, the character of a story, and I, I think also sort of a story surprising you, you know, if you're telling a story about something that happened to you, and then somebody questions a detail that you brought up, and that becomes the story, right? And, and that, that to me is the best. And that's kind of what writing is about. You set out with, you know, something in mind of what the story could be, and then it, it takes a turn on you. Um, and you're surprised, and eventually the reader will be surprised. And I think the other thing is just a total love of language and the things that language can do, which I think is pretty much everything, you know, in terms of making us feel things and connect us with other people and places, getting us out of our houses and our lives and and, and giving us that, I think, that ability to travel. And, and, and so, you know, I came into writing as a reader first. And um, and I think that that was definitely what I loved about reading was just you know, making my life much bigger than it actually was. And, um, you know, and, and I think gradually sort of seeing just all the things that were possible in terms of narrative and language and, you know, the different voices and the different mm-hmm. writers. You know, I, I read a lot of writers from all over the world. And whenever I started to do that, I, I realized that I could go anywhere, right? Um, and, and so that's all I'm going to say because I could go on probably longer. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Professor Stement, what about you? Why do you write? I like to ask questions. Um, you know, I, I'm also more of a reader than anything else. And when I read, I like to think about how the writer did the thing that they did and why they made those decisions to tell the stories in those ways. So as a literary critic, you know, I really see myself as asking the questions about why and how and and so what you know that annoying english professor question you know what are the stakes of making this decision so when alan decides to you know have a beautiful turn of phrase then i want to say well how does it work and why does it matter and how does it change the world that we're in to read this thing because it, it absolutely does you know given the current climate that we're in in this nation particularly still with the pandemic also still grappling with calls for racial, social justice. And based on what you all just said, are you seeing these type of themes coming from the the emerging writers over at the college? Or are you seeing those themes come out from the students? I mean, absolutely. I I think, um, you know, I was teaching the senior seminar last fall, which began, I think, in, you know, late August. And this was after, you know, a really tough summer and things, you know, I think Jacob Blake had just been, you know, shot in, in, in Kenosha, right? Like the week before I think class started. And um, so one of the things we talked about with my students was that your work is your power and what you're feeling and everything you're living right now will make its way into whatever it is you write this semester. And there's one project, you know, to, I think, point out in particular, Eve Barrett, who's a finalist for this year's creative nonfiction, 
is writing about being afraid of the dark and being afraid of, you know, just going to sleep at night and sleeping with a nightlight. And so in this essay, she's writing about that sort of irrational fear. She knows the doors are locked. She knows she's safe. She's in a, she's with her family. She's in a good home, um, you know, safe house in a good neighborhood. And yet, um, and then kind of takes you through visits to um, this house that was attacked during the civil war and then takes you to a list of um, black American men and women who were killed in their houses or in their driveways, right, arriving home. And, and so what begins is this very subjective fear of the dark and this very, you know, sort of eccentric character becomes like this reality of the culture and a reality of what it's like to be, you know, a young black woman knowing you're not safe in your house. And, and so I think she very much took what was going on like right now in the country and has been going on and put that right into her work and, and turned it into a really powerful piece of writing. Professor Stamit, what do you want to add to that? I would just add that students in the writing competition have do have done this. You know, I've I've read all of the magazines that we have access to over the last few months. And from the beginning in 1972, one of the winners in the contest um, writes a, a poem called Ode to the Vietnam Dead. And so when we're thinking about the long history of the Agnes Scott Writers Festival and the Writers Festival contest, we're able to see the ways in which student writers really have a, an important role and voice in how they respond to current events. And these events are excruciating and they're, you know, um, they're intense and students are feeling them acutely in ways that um, maybe some of us who are a little bit older are more immune to or inured to or resigned to or something. You know, the, the intensity of the feeling of student writers is something that's really important and can be felt across the decades in the competition magazine. And it's something that I, I shouldn't have been surprised by, but I was every time I opened a new issue of the magazine. And I am I'm so I'm pleased and delighted and amazed by how brave these writers continue to be. Um, when Eve was reading last night, I was in tears. And you know that's something that happens every year. And I, I forget <laughs> that it happens every year, um, but I don't forget how brave and brilliant and, and strong these writers are and the kind of important perspective that they bring to the literary conversation. You know, this is our record. And when you think about the age of these young writers at Agnes Scott College, and you go back to 1972, yep. some of the themes yeah. are still the same. Not a surprise, as you said. To that note, what do you want folks to know about next year, Professor Stamet? They're going to come back? Well, <laughs> we're hoping, we're hoping to bring back, you know, the writers who were not able to join us uh, in 2020. Um, and yeah, we're excited. I, I think it's been really great to have the opportunity for lots of people to join our events virtually. And so we're thinking about ways to continue to offer some virtual access to the events. Um, we had a, a conversation with English department and friends, um, retired members of the department, other members of the campus community on Monday evening. And I actually posed the same question. And so we have lots of ideas about what to do for the next 50 years. Y'all need to add a public radio poetry slam. <laughs> I'm in. I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> we actually have a, a, a poetry slam student group called Ignite. Yeah. They're awesome. They are awesome. I'm very aware of that. Just saying, and you know, if you 
think about it. You know, you want someone to help with that, you know. Now, um, I'm not saying I'm going to be in it. I'm just (laughs) (laughs) What a wonderful conversation. Professor of English, Nicole Stement, organizer of the Agnes Scott College Writers Festival, and Alan Gross Stephen, assistant professor of English at the college, and he also teaches creative writing and a novelist as well. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate a good conversation. It's a delight. I think a public media poetry slam would be awesome. Let me know what you think. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Or as you all always do, send me anything. (laughs) Comments, suggestions for topics, barbecue spots, including vegan, rose at wabe.org. That's it for today's show. Closer Look is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online. Just head to wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights now at 7 p.m. As well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.